Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Why would I continue, you know, walking on water for tips when I've got an entire generation to teach a whole new world? Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, it's been a week since the movie Joker came out. How many people have you killed since you saw it? Well, I'm not an incel, so this wasn't a rally cry for me. <laughs> but I was a little nervous in the theater, got to tell you. There's a lot of weird Cornell kids. Yeah. I wasn't quite sure what they were frustrated hiding in, hiding in their dirty sweatpants. <laughs> so you saw it, right? I did. I saw it and I... You know, I loved it. It's fucking great. <laughs> that was a, one of the best movies I've seen in a long, long time. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it. I'm I'm afraid it'll trigger empathy in me for Trump voters for Ho- for Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> well, that's the reviews are like I felt uncomfortable sense of empathy for this guy. Oh my god! Him. I you know I was reading those reviews too, and I am just like I have I. <sighs> Look, if I could be pushed to the right, they would be pushing me. I just, there's nowhere to push me, but they're pushing me, man. Like, like this is a fucking movie based on like a notorious villain in the comic books who is like, by all measures, one of the worst people ever depicted in the history of comic books. So like, so in an indirect way, the movie Joker (laughs) has radicalized you yeah <laughs> via these uh reviews it's the reviews that are pushing me man i just can't like that new yorker review it was like the conceptual penis for movie reviews like i can actually tell if that new yorker article was written tongue-in-cheek it was like some i don't know it was like some mist was released and everyone felt like they had to prove to the world that they were exactly like the caricature the like ben shapiro and uh dave rubin and my stepmother thinks they are you know <laughs> like better. it was yeah. i don't know and i don't know what happened it's it's weird it is like i i think this was true with the chappelle special too like they've just lost their ability to evaluate art and i i like it's like they forget that the thing is a is a work of art that's depicting something yeah. and not endorsing it or or condemning right. it it's just this is I mean, and there are so many uh, movies that are more distressing um, in, in say, a political way. Um, this one, you know, the, you know, I, I, I don't even know what to say. Did you, did you ever, did you ever watch the movie Falling Down? Yeah, yeah. If that movie came out nowadays, there would be just riots. The the liberals would throw riots. 
You know, it was it got some blowback then. I was thinking about the the backlash against that movie and it almost was encouraging because maybe this stuff has been happening before and it's not some new trend in a bad direction because you know i mean clockwork orange if you look at uh the yeah. fight club some of a lot of the fight club reviews were a little like this um right and you know those are much better movies i'm assuming than joker is although you maybe you i don't disagree. know man yeah. i i i mean i think it's an open question i won't say yes or no but but those are obviously two amazing movies, but Joaquin Phoenix's performance alone in this movie, I, you know, I'm tainted because I am a big fan of the DC comics. Um, I've read all the Batmans. This is heavily true to a one particular comic book. That's, that's a classic called the killing joke, um, by Alan Moore, but it also is, as you've probably read heavily pays homage to, to some seventies cinema. Taxi Driver oh. and also King of Comedy right? and King of Comedy, yeah. It's like just very clearly that. So there's a way in which the movie doesn't have to at all be about a comic book character, but but it is, and I think it's given that context, it's very very clear. Like no, there's nobody who comes out of this with sympathy for the Joker. You have sympathy for the plight of the mentally ill, if anything, and if anything, when you see this movie. It is more like a rally for class warfare, right? It seems like a like it's it's more of that than anything else. Um, if there is a political message at all, but but I don't think there is. I think it's just the fucking Joker. Well, this is the, I mean, that class. If it is class warfare, is a class that doesn't get sympathy from a certain group of critics, um, like working class mentally ill or drug addicted white men is not someone that inspires sympathy these days i'm going by my daughter's description of it i shouldn't even like i tweeted an article about it without having seen it so (laughs) it's almost like a guilty confession but my daughter saw it and talked about it to me and said you know like the first the first hour of it you do feel bad for him like that's okay. It's okay. Like <laughs> it's perfectly okay. Not everybody. It's not like they're evil babies, you know. Yeah. Like they just like it's okay to feel bad for somebody that then you know turns out to be a a really bad person. But like you've thought about this a lot, I assume. So so I don't know if we've ever talked about this deep contradiction on the part of, of our, you know, I say our because I, I align myself mostly with, with liberals about this stuff, but uh, the deep contradiction in being very, very pro-prison reform and opposed to the bad conditions in which prisoners are kept and the, the bad reasons for which we incarcerate, yet unwilling to have sympathy for any given criminal. It's a very weird stand to take. <laughs> And in fact, the same ones who are worried about that twinge of empathy that they were manipulated into feeling for yeah. the whatever his name, what's Joker's name in it? Uh, Arthur Fleck. Arthur Fleck. They're usually trumpeting feeling empathy for prisoners in general. And right. I bet you could find individual prisoners that... It has to be the right one. The, the, the very right. <laughs> 
kind of yeah i mean look i i think everyone's also the good news is i think everyone's a little embarrassed about what happened critically the critical yeah. reaction to the movie like i know a lot more critics who are just embarrassed for their profession than i do critics who are standing firm behind right. like this is a dangerous and you know, this movie is is meant to rally the the white resentment uh, in this country at a time where we can not afford to to have that. Uh, and if anything, there's a ton of you know, it's really about class class and like all. I'd say most of the people on, of color on screen that you see are in the same class as as Arthur Fleck, and they 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 like him. Um, but I, I will perhaps end this segment with my one of my favorite tweets about this was, I forget whose it was, so I can't give him credit, but it was, just finished my 8,000 word review of The Joker. Yeah. Can't wait to see the film. Yeah, I saw that too. <laughs> yeah. That's like, that's like me talking about it, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, normally I would get, this is pure hypocrisy, like I would get mad at somebody probably. <laughs> How is he even talking about it if he hasn't seen it? Maybe it's not hypocrisy if you admit it. Uh, that's, Taylor, that's, do you the, think, that's the loophole. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that uh, maybe maybe uh, the left isn't laughing because they're so moral? Yeah, that is an interesting question. What would lead you to ask that question? <laughs> well, before we get to... The Ted Chang story, uh, and two Ted a couple, Chang two Ted Chang stories, part two of Anxiety is the Dizziness of Freedom, and um, the other one, What's Expected of Us. Uh, you pointed me to, I don't remember who, somebody tweeted this to us, um, yeah, a or new paper. Uh, we found it through the, art, the headline on The Independent, People with High Moral Standards Are Less Likely to Be Funny. So this is a paper that they did in the journal of forthcoming journal of personality and social psychology. And the basic finding is, and they actually, I actually really thought they did a decent job of this. The basic finding is that people who have a, who are, have a strong moral identity. And we'll talk about what that means um, for whom morality, their morality is central to their sense of who they are. It's a sense of identity are both, less likely to find things funny and less funny themselves. And, I, and the idea is that they draw on this benign violation theory. It's a theory first proposed by philosopher Thomas Veach, but most recently by psychologist Pete McGraw that says that like a lot of humor is some combination of a moral violation that's benign. So it can't be too mean, can't be too fucked up. Right, it's not funny when lots of people die for real, but maybe a year after lots of people die for real, it's kind of funny. <laughs> I remember I gave a talk where I talked about this theory oh, yeah. at yeah, Duke yeah. when you, mm -hmm. I think you invited me for that. That's right. Yeah, um, in Walter's Senator Armstrong's uh, moral psychology research group. Yeah, yeah. So it's an interesting theory and it makes a lot of intuitive sense. It is, it, it has this weird sort of ad hoc quality because benign, how do they determine what's benign and what's not? Like if, if a tragedy is funny a year afterwards, that's, yeah. but it's not like a priori that a year would make it benign, right? That's yeah. sort of uh, a post hoc way of explaining. You see what I mean? So like the, no, the predictive yeah, power of it, 
depends on us having an agreed upon sense of what's benign and what isn't. But there is I, no sort of independent way of drawing that distinction. I I totally agree. And I like I lecture on humor um, in my intro psych course because it's a fun thing to talk about. And and I talk about these other theories like incongruity theory and why they're uh, not satisfying. And I honestly think that benign violation theory is more just a descriptor of a, a wider set of jokes. Right. right. It, like you say, it may, it makes good sense, but I don't think it can predict well what we will find funny. Like it's not a theory in, in that sense. Um, it reminds me of a Mel Brooks quote where he says, tragedy is when I cut my finger. Comedy is when you fall into an open sewer and die. <laughs> right. <laughs> where it's like, well, it's not benign for the person who fell. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, but, but, but whatever they so, yeah, use whatever. that theory to um, to set yeah to set this up so i guess the idea is people who have a higher sense of themselves as moral will find more moral violations or norm violations to be not benign and therefore they will find them to be less funny Right. Yeah. In some sense, all you need from benign violation theory is to say that the descriptive part that says a lot of jokes contain this component of being kind of crossing the line about moral violations. That's all you really need. And so people who are serious about morality are less likely to do that. Given that those things tend to be funny, then they're going to be less funny. I wanted to to just explicitly state how moral identity is measured. Yes. So there is a uh, a scale of moral identity developed by a gar a guy named Carl. I believe he pronounces it Aquino, but Aquino A Q U I N I A N O. Um, that's been used a lot. It's been especially used like in in business schools and stuff. And the idea is that you can use this as an individual difference measure um, and put where somebody is on the centrality of this of these moral concepts to their identity. And so what you do is you give a, a, a set of moral traits and they have a, a paper that validates all these scales in, in the way that you, you might expect. But you give people a bunch of traits that have been judged to be moral, caring, compassionate, fair, friendly, generous, hardworking, helpful, honest, kind, ruthless, obviously reverse scored as are selfish and distant. And you give people the instructions that go like this. Listed uh, below are some characteristics that may describe a person. You list the nine traits. The person with these characteristics could be you or could be someone else for a moment. Visualize in your mind the kind of person who has these characteristics. Imagine how the person would think, feel, and act. When you have a clear image of what this person would be like, answer the following questions. And then they're asked questions like this. It would make me feel good to be a person who has these characteristics. Um, this is on a seven point scale. Um, being someone who has these characteristics is an important part of who I am. Reverse scored. I would be ashamed to have to be a person who has these characteristics. Having these characteristics is not really important to me. Uh, I often buy products that communicate the fact that I have these characteristics. I often wear clothes that identify me as having these characteristics. The fact that I have these characteristics is communicated to others by my membership in certain organizations. All right. So things like that. So the higher you score on this, um, and the, the items that I read are this internalization factor. There's two different factors, but for this paper, they only looked at this internalization factor. Like how, 
how much an, an internal part of your identity is this morality? So can I just ask a question yeah. about this? So this is what psychologists would call a construct, mm-hmm. high moral identity. identity. Yeah. And the way it's operationalized is through this scale. Yeah. It's a score on this scale. There is a tacit assumption that this is this is something that people can be high or low in, that it sticks together, um, that these are all tapping into the same underlying construct, even though you can't measure it directly. These are ways of tapping into this, this latent construct. They create a bunch of these uh, items and they see how well they stick together in the sense of they, they correlate with each other. If you answered high to the first thing that I said, did you answer, tend to answer high to the second thing that I said? Okay. So, <laughs> I feel like we should play some curb music. Like, you know. Okay. Well, I won't comment for now. Yes. <laughs> I mean, this is how you measure things, right? Yeah. This is how it is. <laughs> I, I, I know that it is how you measure things. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you, you don't measure things. You're a philosopher. You you just measure, you just eyeball measure everything. one big, very big thing. <laughs> you just eyeball it, so that way you have a lot of flexibility in your answer. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So measurement aside, Tamler is itching to do a episode on measurement. Unfortunately, um, it did not here. win our poll, but we'll talk about that after. Um, what what they what they end up looking at is score on this in, internalization scale. And they do what, this is the part that I was in, interested in, in what you thought about. So, so they gave people, they selected a joke, a set of jokes. So this guy Wiseman, I think his name is Richard Wiseman in, in O2, he put up like thousands and thousands of jokes on the internet and had like millions and millions of people rate them. Mm. And uh, to find out what the funniest, what people thought was the funniest joke, so he ha- so he has this archive of jokes that have been rated by people like all over the world. Um, so they picked nine of those jokes, <laughs> and they just ask people. It turns out people high in moral identity were not very good at determining which ones were funny. Not very yeah. good at determining. I mean, which I think. Let me. They they didn't assuming that the ones. I mean, fine. So this result shows that they find a narrower class of things to be funny um, because they involve moral violations, presumably. But how did they determine that these people who scale high in moral identity, because that's a real psychological attribute. How, how did uh, how, how did they find that they were less funny? That they were less funny as people. So, in a separate study, now, like as you point out, in the first study, they were manipulated into having a high moral identity. In this next study, they were measured simply on how high, sort of as a as a trait, as a personality trait, how high they were in moral identity. And they had everybody generate uh, humorous captions, so like a caption contest. Um, and it's a task apparently that's been used before, um, specifically to capture spontaneous humor, um, in the absence of a human interaction. So they then, uh, so everybody in the study generated 
captions and they had 286 coders that they recruited through prolific rate. Uh, they were blind to the experimental condition in the hypotheses and they rated how funny each caption was from one not funny at all to five very funny. Turns out there's high agreement about what's funny. But if you care about the numbers, that the alphas are 0.85 and 0.91, which is very, very uh, good for a scale. So they had a ratings of, uh, so these were across two captions each. The raters rated humor and the moral violations. So they found that participants were less, who were high in moral identity, were less likely to create captions that involve moral moral violations, and they just generated less funny captions. So if you are high in moral identity, you are not likely to win the New Yorker caption contest. <laughs> or at least you have to temporarily set aside your desire to think of yourself as a good person. Well, they have some, some recommendations for people who are high in moral identity that I will read at the end. Um, <laughs> oh, you but, did? I didn't actually, I didn't get to the, the, to the discussion. I, <laughs> Yeah, okay, so they write less funny captions, and let's just say that's an indication of how funny they are. I mean, it's at least a decent, it's a face-valid indication of funniness in some sense, right? I guess. I mean, I think funniness takes a lot of forms. Like, I think, uh, I don't know, if would you and I be good at that? I'm amazing at that. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like to the extent that I'm a funny person, that would not be the way in which I was necessarily funny. But I haven't tried it. There's probably a low bar. All these high it's, moral identity people out there. <laughs> it is a, it is an interesting question, right? Like, people often say that stand-up comedians aren't funny in, in real life. And you could mean a number of things by that. But one of the things you could mean is that there are just different kinds of humor. And this... Yeah. I would think is tapping into one specific kind of humor. Whether or not these people have like a humorous demeanor about them, who knows? Maybe they're just really clever, you know? Right, that seems to tap into cleverness more than funny in some yeah. sense. I mean, this is part of the problem. Like, there's so many of these kinds of, all right, we use this scale to measure, you know, funniness and how funny you find things and how popular you are at work and uh, in your profession and how like there's just so many of these things that you know maybe capture part of something but don't capture all of them that it's interesting to think to what extent you can make the kinds of general claims that they're making given that they are um going after just a sliver of right of what it really means to be funny or to be a likable colleague mm, right so one can say, I think, what I'm comfortable saying is that they found reliably a relationship between these measures. Right. Um, and that is a relationship that I may not have expected or not have predicted and one that makes sense. Is that true? You would not have predicted that? <clears throat> I, I, I would have sort of reserved my judgment because I feel like it's kind of a stereotype. You know, I... I view myself as I try to be funny and I think of myself as, as pretty moral. So, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it's just the salience of that. Well, knowing <laughs> you, like that makes me doubt the connection between thinking yourself moral and being moral, you know, well, that, that much is true. 
<laughs> Which I'm under no, I'm under no, guys. Is there a Dunning Kruger for morality? Actually, you know, some, and sometimes the the way this is presented is moral people are less funny in the popular press, and sometimes they kind of slip into that language, and even in the paper. But right. it really, it's not. It you know, it could be somebody who's sort of sanctimonious. Uh, and not moral, which is... Are you, are you saying they overclaim in their discussion? I'm not. I think, I mean, <laughs> yes, I think obviously they are, but <laughs> I'm not saying. We, we're trained, by the way, psychologists are trained to overclaim in our discussion, which is one reason I didn't even read the discussion. We just sort of read the results and the methods and the intro and... and <laughs> well, there is a golden little Pete nugget in the discussion. <laughs> um, right. Tell me we talked say. enough about the study? I think so. I mean, there were five studies. The The last two were like actually in the workplace um, that, you know, I, I don't know. I didn't. It showed that people who are funnier were more liked in the workplace. Totally. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's likability, right? Yeah. Yeah. So here's the quote, because, you know, this has deep implications for people who are high in moral identity. They will be <laughs> less funny, less likely to find things funny. And and so colleagues will uh, likely find them less likable like angela from the office i just this is the, the most pretentious thing to say but i've only watched the british office <laughs> <laughs> oh but is that God. a big surprise for me really yeah, my daughter has watched all of the american because <laughs> every because every 15 year old girl has I'm surprised because the the U.S. office is also mostly white people. I thought you, that would be something you're really into. Yeah. I don't only like it. It's not. It's a. It's not a sufficient condition. It's just, <laughs> just necessary, you know. Uh, so recognizing the implications, they write. Our findings call attention to potential risks that individuals with strong moral identities should be aware of. To be clear, we're not suggesting they should compromise their values or violate moral standards to be funny and gain likability in the workplace. Rather, we encourage employees to strive to embody the values they possess while simultaneously cultivating social ex exchanges that are pleasant and enjoyable. Because the activation of a moral identity appears to, suppress, appears to suppress humor production, individuals with strong moral identities should seek to deliberately offset this suppression during <laughs> critical interactions. Although they do not appear to make such an effort spontaneously, study three, managers with strong moral identities can make a deliberate effort to tell a few inoffensive linguistic <laughs> puns while discussing business ethics with subordinates. <laughs> I'm so glad they put that in, that little piece of Because otherwise, I think, you know, there would be despair. I mean, that'll fix it, right? If these managers who nobody finds funny just make a little extra effort to, you know, make some non-offensive linguistic puns and, and they'll be fine. I give this paragraph a 4.5 out of 5 on my humor scale. Uh, yeah, uh, I think that's that's low. <laughs> that is I like how the, the advice is like, I know that we said that moral people are less funny, but here's our advice. <laughs> try to be both moral and funny. Yeah. No, seriously. Try to be both moral and funny. And if you're not sure how, 
linguistic pun here and there. <laughs> this is this should be like the new way how they rate the funniness of this paragraph should determine like their sense of humor essentially, like how good their sense of humor is. And and you know, I, I read something about how there's a lot of nominal nominalization in yeah. uh to try in psychology like just the idea of construct is a nominalization because it's it, it it's not a it's not an actual word until psychologists made it a word from construct so, um and so then, so but sorry by this you mean that we are putting labels on a group of phenomena and and giving them power to be things just by dint of the label <laughs> reifying them through the reifying the, them, yeah. the label Yes. In addition, I mean, I just love the idea that this is like good advice for not funny people <laughs> to just try to <laughs> sprinkle in a few inoffensive linguistic puns with your subordinates. But uh, <laughs> can I tell my mementos joke again? <laughs> yeah, that, that's a perfect example. <laughs> but, you know, like in, to gain likability in the workplace is is sort of an example of that. Right. Like gain likability nobody talks like that nobody says i just need to gain likability or i think that person has low likability um, <laughs> and the the suppress humor production um <laughs> like humor production is like a thing now like it's uh, like some sort of like but, uh, like the factory is producing humor <laughs> but this okay this is this is a quirk of the the attempted scientific language but you don't it's not like you don't think that people like people more or less in the workplace or you're just making fun of the language not the underlying construct itself that like some people are like this might not be a great example of the reifying of uh <laughs> yeah, some people just are likable you know it's very loose and messy and and yeah. but it is a property i would agree with yeah. that yeah <laughs> but i think that's the thing is that you guys do this it's infected your writing everywhere even even when you're not just trying to convince us that something exists just by dint of like the your change of the language but oh by dint of i used your but yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'm learning (laughs) maybe i should do this um yeah you're saying as opposed to the the clarity and clear access to underlying natural phenomena that philosophers have (laughs) their use of languages i mean i think Um, like we like Mutatis muta. I'm saying mutatis mutandis. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Like I, I always knew that we did this, and obviously, if you do it, we do it worse. But, um, but yeah, it's becoming clear to me that we're not the only ones. Well, I am going directly against the advice of this, and I am suggesting that you should compromise your values and violate your moral standards to be funny. And gain likability in the workplace. I think the workplaces would be a lot better if people compromised their values for the sake of funniness, not for profit, just just for likability. I'm just, so how many linguistic puns do I need, to, inoffensive linguistic puns, to g- gain a 9% increase in likability? That's what I'm looking like for, it. 9% increase. Not like, I'm not trying to be too ambitious. I'm not going crazy. The mistake was to think that a linguistic pun ever is ever funny. <laughs> right. My guess is that that will decrease their likability, maybe by as much as a percent for each inoffensive linguistic pun. But <laughs> the the only time I find linguistic puns hilarious 
is when they're in rap songs and therefore not called puns. And I will end with the best little way in line I've ever heard. He said, real G's move in silence like lasagna. This is pretty, pretty good. <laughs> well, I'm just trying to get it. <laughs> Silent G. Real G's. Oh, that's, <laughs> God. <laughs> I might have a high moral identity. Do you like, like me more? Yeah. Do you like me more? I do. <laughs> You've you've increased four percent in likability. Um, if this is a I guess this is a workplace of sorts. Your so. your mock precision is insulting to me. But I'm not a subordinate. I don't. At least <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't consider true. myself only sexually. All right. <laughs> uh, that's a, a, a malign <laughs> violation. Not benign. Not funny. Uh, all right. We'll be right back. All right, we have a new sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you in part by HelloFresh. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Get easy seasonal recipes and pre-measured ingredients delivered right to your door. All you have to do is cook and enjoy. Dave, do you like to cook at home? You know what? Left to my own devices, all I do is warm up bread. Um, that's <laughs> but I have really to. I, 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 yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, I'm like a Russian during the like <laughs> the early 1900s. Um, a little cabbage soup. No, but I have to cook because I have a daughter, so uh, yeah. I, I have to cook. Well, HelloFresh makes cooking delicious meals at home a reality, regardless of your comfort in the kitchen. From step-by-step recipes to pre-measured ingredients, you'll have everything you need to get a wow-worthy dinner on the table in just about 30 minutes. So here's the thing. I have a dinner rut. We do. We love to cook at home, but we've been in a bit of a dinner rut lately. Kind of the same old thing. Not warmed up bread. Not that kind of, <laughs> not that depth of rut. Uh, but chef salad, pesto pasta, paninis every single week. We've also had some medical issues recently, some bad stuff. So getting HelloFresh was so helpful for us. It saved time, which we didn't have, and it got us out of our dinner rut. We had black bean and poblano quesadillas. Those were good. Oh, those are so good. Pasta parmesan, also good. And then my favorite, Mediterranean baked veggies with Israeli couscous, which is my favorite kind of couscous. HelloFresh is flexible and fits your lifestyle. You can add extra meals to your weekly order as well as yummy add-ons like garlic bread and cookie dough. You can change your delivery days, food preferences, and skip a week whenever you need. And we've got a special offer for our listeners off. That's like getting eight meals free. So for $80 off your first month of HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash VeryBadWizards80 and enter VeryBadWizards80 at checkout. Once again, $80 off your first month of HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash VeryBadWizards80 and enter VeryBadWizards80 at checkout. Thanks to HelloFresh for sponsoring this episode.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. At this time in the show, we like to thank everybody who has been so kind in and generous in their support for us. We really, really appreciate it. And one of the ways that you support us and that we appreciate your support is in the way in which you interact with us and interact with each other online. We really appreciate getting all your emails, getting your tweets, and reading your messages. If you want to get a hold of us, if you want to email us, you can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet to our show account at verybadwizards or to at Tamler and at Pease. Um, you can follow our Instagram uh, to see the new shows when they're posted. You can become a member of our Facebook discussion group. Are we going to still do that? No. Is that, it's over. Is that, that's, it's Last over. post has already been posted. <laughs> Uh, you know, somebody time. offered to take it over. Should we oh, yeah? let them do that? I mean, sure. <laughs> yeah, it's just it just takes forever to post there now. I don't know like why or what the deal is with that, but it just uh yeah. it's um, the life stretched is. for time uh, yeah. so, uh, already. It's... I feel bad cuz that was the first place that we really built a community. Yeah, um, so uh, so we should keep it going for the for for people if if we have a volunteer then that's that's yeah. awesome thank you um you can join the reddit community that is self-sufficient in the way that reddit is uh reddit.com slash r slash very bad wizards um and any way that you reach out to us you know we check those those forums um we check we read every email um and we obviously don't have time to respond to everything but we really appreciate it so thank you yeah uh, from one of those venues was our opening segment uh, topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of that, if you want to support us in more tangible ways, one of the ways you can do that is become a Patreon supporter. And there are several different tiers of levels. Um, you can get all of Dave's beats, um, the four volumes now of your beats, right? Yes. You can um, get bonus episodes. Uh, that we have done and we've done a bunch now we've probably done six or seven at least right what are what's our next one gonna be i it's either gonna be top five deadwood characters which i like oh yeah that's right or that's dark because right. you are dark that's right yeah and now uh, we're currently both watching the leftovers maybe maybe we'll have something to say about that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um so if you that's like like binge watch with wizards wizard binge <laughs> something like, i don't know uh <laughs> anyway uh you can uh become one of our patreon supporters we we love them we appreciate them and in fact one of the things that uh one of the tiers gets to vote on a list of finalists um f- for topics that were suggested by all of our patreon supporters and w- we have a winner i haven't i don't know this this is actually news to me i haven't looked all right so in tied for last place fairness nobody Uh, gives a shit about fairness so unfair they're probably low in moral identity um (laughs) random selection of email also tied for last um you know decent numbers though this was all like everyone got a good number of votes tragically and i mean this like this is a tragedy measurement and psychology slash philosophy of science uh um, was t- just two votes more than those um then loyalty 
just a few votes higher than that in Richard Rorty's essay. But really, it was a two-topic race from from the beginning. I should have asked you to predict which one. I would not have predicted this. So David Foster Wallace came in second. That's the one I huh. thought would win. And the winner was the Gazanaga split brain experiments, including Whoa. the recent replication. Oh, wow. One by wow. six votes over uh, David Foster Wallace. Uh, you know what? Maybe I can try to get Gazanaga on. Like, that would be interesting. Yeah. yeah well, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I've, I've seen him give a talk, couple talks. Uh, where is he? Is he still at Dartmouth? Split brains. Uh, I think so. I think so. I don't know. Anyway, um, uh, that's so we'll do a topic on that. I'm I'm psyched psyched for that. I didn't think it would win, but I'm excited. Yeah, me too. It's it's uh, it's a thing that I never get bored of lecturing about because it's sort of mind blowing. But like, I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into it. Yeah. Find out that everything I've been telling my students is bull- bullshit. It's very <laughs> related, actually, to the stories that we're about to cover. In some ways, yeah. it is one of those things that makes you feel like your will isn't what you thought it was. Right. Because then it is in Santa Barbara, by the way. Oh, that's smart. Oh, you can also give us a one-time donation on um, PayPal on our website and rate us on iTunes. We always love that. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, everybody. Thank you. All right. Should we just do a quick recap of where we are in anxiety and dizziness of freedom? Uh, Just all the the, the characters um, in the world. Yeah, yeah. How the how the world works, especially. <laughs> Obviously, listen to the first episode. <laughs> yeah, listen to uh, episode one seventy three that we had two weeks ago, um, and read the story because now we're going to spoil something. Like, I actually don't think like we spoiled anything that like didn't w- was bad to spoil. But this last little twist is really nice, and it's nice to find it out for yourself. So read the story yeah. if you haven't yet. Um, but there are these prisms. Uh, once they're activated, splits the universe and allows you to contact your split self in that universe. And this has become kind of a commodity, and people are using it for all sorts of things, sometimes to um, interrogate their choices um, if they had made different ones. Right. Each cre- each prism is a portal into a different universe. That universe might have created have been created by someone entirely different, but it nonetheless exists now. And there are companies that do their research to find out what's going on with a bunch of other people in those parallel universes. And so long as those prisms haven't run out of energy to communicate with each other, they can go, go up to like Tamler and say, Hey, uh, you want to talk to Tamler in this universe? This is the one who decided not to get married and Tamler might give him a lot of money. Then there, we talked about these characters. There's Dana, who is the leader of a support group uh, of people trying who are just struggling with this technology. Trying, it's it's like a, I guess, a kind of an Alcoholics Anonymous for people who are having they have unhealthy relationships with their prisms. Um, and so she's kind of a psychologist. She's a therapist of a sort, in of this specialized sort. Uh, we have Nan who works at uh, one of these places and is a former drug user who was engaged in this scam to make someone in 
Dana's support group sell his prism so that they could make money by selling it to this celebrity whose husband uh, died in a car crash in one universe, but it was him that died in the other in the other universe. And so in each universe, the surviving member of that marriage can is different, and so they can talk to each other. Um, right. And that's rare and hard to find, right? Yeah. Because the, the worlds are often so similar that those kinds of big things don't differ that much. So maybe, maybe in one universe, the person wouldn't have died, but they would have been really fucked up. But in this case, it was a boon for the people with the, with the crystal because they could have the two survivors talk to each other. And this guy, Moro, as we said, is kind of an ambulance chaser. He looks for these kinds of things to exploit. And so when he happened over here that someone had a prism where the other person died in a car crash, he knew that was a business opportunity. So Morrow has been shot um, by somebody. It, it's, we didn't talk about this, but when Morrow is shot um, for something he had done in a previous scam, the guy, he has this little face-off, this showdown with the guy and the gun, and he says, I don't believe you'll shoot me. And the guy leaves. Nan is watching this. Is am I right that it's Nan? No, I don't think so. Yeah. Fuck. Why didn't you correct me? <laughs> because you gaslit me, and I was like, "Wait a second. It is Nat. 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 Yeah. Fuck. I said Nan before, but it's actually fucking Nat. And um, I didn't correct you. Uh. Anyway, so. Moro says to the guy, you don't have the balls to shoot me. And the guy puts his gun down and walks out. And Nat says, what what are you doing? That was crazy. And he said, I knew he didn't have it in him. Then the guy walks back. He says, what does it matter? And he shoots him. And the what does it matter comes because he knew that in some universe, he probably did shoot him. So he might as well shoot him in this one. Right. (laughs) Uh, right right which is i think sent you know something central to the interesting part of the discussion that we alluded to before about the meaninglessness whether multiple universes gives meaninglessness because a certain core of people have have taken this to be the ultimate kind of nihilist statement that nothing you do matters and so they engage in all sorts of self-destructive behavior because what does it matter in some universe they're probably doing something like this anyway so right and not to bring it up again, but this is the, this is the well, I am going to bring it up again. Uh, Rick and Rick and Morty has exactly this kind of despair because he's keenly aware that every, in every, there are these multiple universes where every iteration of him exists. In fact, at one point, he just transplants himself into a different universe. He knows that none of those people are special in his, in his world. There's just a nearby parallel universe where there are almost identical copies. And he's entered into this sort of alcoholic despair um, because so of that's what, because and, of this. And and what's interesting about the p- part of the story that we didn't get to last time is it sort of undermines that idea, at least in this universe. This isn't a full on kind of infinite yeah. multiverse kind of theory, right? It's, right. Um, right. So 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 what happens at the end is we've had a little backstory. Dana had had this high school friendship with kind of a bad girl named Vanessa. Dana was sort of the good, smart student who worked hard, and and Vanessa brought out a wilder side in her. And 
And as they were on a trip in Washington, D.C., I think, right, um, they were yeah. gathering Vicodin, and they were going to take a bunch of Vicodin <laughs> in this hotel room that was part of the student trip. I like to think that if you and I had gone to the <laughs> high school, we would have done that. But. No, I wouldn't have given it away for the right. other members of the party. It would have just been us splitting. That's true. But yeah, they were going to give it away. Yeah. <laughs> just that, that like, shows. Uh, but anyway... Um, they uh, a teacher burst in with us like surprise check on the hotel rooms, and Dana, blurt. This is when she was in high school. Blurted out that they were all Vanessa's pills, not hers. So she kind of threw Vanessa under the bus, and that has haunted her because Vanessa then, um, her life takes a bad turn after that. She gets suspended from school, and then. She just, uh, she quits school. She she starts using drugs. She starts um, committing small crimes. And she comes back to Dana, and Dana's been giving her money because she feels guilty for this. The previous times that she's give, given Vanessa money, Vanessa has just uh, wasted it, probably on drugs or on whatever new thing she's into. And so she comes back. And so this is just this constant kind of, albatross hanging over dana but she thinks she deserves it because of what she did on that day in the hotel room yeah i mean because she what she did was something i'd feel really yeah it was shitty it was shitty it was so it's easy to see that this was the sort of the causal nexus of vanessa's decline having been in that room and so of course she spins a story about how that was the moment and 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 you can also see how you know, the way this universe works, it takes, it's a very small thing that will make you do something else. You know, maybe if she had had one less beer, she wouldn't have, or if she had gotten a little more sleep the night before, she wouldn't have done it. But she did it in this world, and it has, it's it's haunted her, as you're right, it should have, that, that she threw her friend under the bus like that, um, and she's trying to atone. Now, Nat sees this Vanessa earlier in the story when she's trying to get um, Lyle to sell his prism. And Nat can just tell that Vanessa is just someone who's always going to blame somebody else for their problems and um, someone who just refuses to take responsibility for their own troubles. Um, Right. That's because Nat used to be that way too. And so she just knows that this, that poor Dana is getting exploited here, but her goal isn't, at that point in any way to help Dana. So what happens at the end is Nat goes and offers to sell the prism. um, This was the plan all along, but Morrow is going to do it. Now she has to do it, at least in her universe. And she's starting to have second thoughts. The support group's actually been good for her. And she's starting to have second thoughts, and she um, starts to wonder whether she should really charge this guy to be able to talk to his dead husband. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe she should give it for free. Maybe that would be good for her character. He had this conversation with she had this conversation with Dana, where Dana was saying that just these little choices that you make can have reverberating effects on your character, just make you into a slightly better person, so you'd be slightly more likely to make the better choice next time. And where we left it, her hand was hovering over the button whether to charge the money or not charge the money. 
Yeah, and she and she had said explicitly, like he probably has fans who would never have charged him. In fact, there are probably lots of people who aren't even his fans who would never charge him, right? And and the other woman was like, yeah, that's that's right. So, so she's hovering, and it just ends in like a cliffhanger of her <laughs> finger sort of hovering over the button of whether to charge him or not. And then we cut to Dana comes home, and there is this package of all these prisms. On each of the prisms, <laughs> there is some other version of Dana that is describing what happened with Vanessa. And in each of these prisms, Dana had made a different choice. In one of them, she had said the Vicodin pills were all hers. In another one, she had said that they both did it. But in all the cases, Vanessa's life takes that same turn and Dana blames herself for it. Like in the case where she said the Vicodin pills were all hers, um, right. she was like, I shouldn't have done that because that was like a burden on Vanessa to know that I had uh, sacrificed <laughs> myself like that. Right, and, right. Like, of course it fucked her up, you know? Like I made her feel guilty for the rest of her life. <laughs> exactly. And um, there is, there, and then there are other, so here's to quote from the book, the other videos made no mention about being caught with the pills, but they still followed a recognizable pattern. In one, Dana felt guilty about introducing Vanessa to a boy who got her addicted to drugs. In another, it was a successful shoplifting incident that emboldened Vanessa to attempt more dramatic thefts. All these Vanessas getting stuck in patterns of self-destructive behavior, all these Danas blaming themselves for it, no matter what actions they took. If the same thing happens in branches where you acted differently then you aren't the cause. Yeah. What Dana realizes is that fluke decision that I made or that key decision that I made didn't end up mattering. This was how yeah. this was this was how it was going to go. Then she kind of realizes, well, maybe I don't have to keep funding this woman's um, destructive tendencies. And the it ends where Dana is kind of yeah. wondering how she got these prisms. And she says, yeah, and it's 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 important to note that the very opening part of the of this story is there's a guy trying to sell his prism because it's it's older than a few days. Um, Nat uh, gives this this guy quote and he says, oh, I thought it would be more. And she says, no, it'd have to be a lot older. Like if it were five years old, then we'd be having a completely different conversation. But when Dana is looking at these, they're not just five years old. Some of them are 15 years old. Yeah. So we know immediately that these are worth a lot, a lot of money. Yeah, she says, these were the most valuable prisms that data, data brokers owned, and transmitting these videos had pr- probably exhausted their pads. Who would have paid for this? It must have cost a fortune. So the implication is that Nat did accept the money, and she used it for this, to free Dana from this this burden that was, it turned out, not a justified burden. A couple of things that, well, there's a few things that I, want, I definitely want to talk to you about. Um, one is, I, I get why Nat might think that it's not a good thing to sell for all this money to the, to the grieving widowers. But I don't get it that much. Like, I, like I don't think... These are rich pop stars. Like this, this amount of money is nothing to them. Like, is it really so shady that she's? Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you want to justify it, she had just had that conversation. 
with Dana yeah. about like little choices that, you know, can. Yeah. And, and I think the right way to look at it is I was thinking about it now is not that she avoided the temptation of doing an ugly thing. I think that it might be perfectly acceptable for her to do it, but rather that she went out of her way to do an above and beyond thing. Yeah. And that's something that she's not yeah. known for. <laughs> and, and that was clearly, I mean, I think like she made the best choice. That was yeah, a really yeah. generous thing to do with that money. You know, I think Dana, she felt like Dana helped her understand her character and maybe get out of her own destructive spirals, um, cycles. This was her way of expressing gratitude and paying her back. Yeah. So somebody emailed us and said, well, I don't think she took the money. What she probably did was talk to the pop star and say, Hey, instead of me taking the money, could you pay for this thing? Did you see that email? Yeah. I was like, why, like, why is that more plausible than like the, I, I would think that the pop star would just say, no, you take the money and you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't you know, know Dana. For, I don't know Dana. I don't, like, do a ton of work. I don't even know this woman. Yeah. <laughs> like, just take the money and 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 use it for that. And also, how would that guy know how to do that? Like, Nat is in this business. She knows like the data brokers to track down for this. I mean, I I like the ending because it was very unexpected. It's a nice way to show that Nat has learned something about how to start becoming a better person and also like it's a really interesting in some ways counterpoint the whole the whole story has been about how the these choices that people make have these massive implications on their lives or potential and in this that's case, what i was yeah it's yeah, it's that's what it i just, wanted to talk about it reverses that right it's like no actually a lot of these choices it doesn't matter because your character this is more of a character as destiny kind of yeah. view where it's your character that matters, not these fluke decisions that you make or don't make. Right. And character is something that is just far more deep into the grooves. Like this is something that is, it is more inherently you, not something that is, is a result of the fluttering in the wind, like whatever, yeah. or, you know, the, the presence of one more molecule of oxygen in the room um that won't affect your character it is on the face of it inconsistent with at least some of the other examples in the book where there were singular decisions that seemed to lead to divergent lives like deciding whether or not to marry somebody but i think that after reading the whole story what you realize is that no it only appears as if that was the singular cause that changed the rest of somebody's uh, life. But it was probably something much deeper that, that you, this person in World A, like what was the name of the woman who was looking to see if she had gotten married? Teresa. Um, Teresa. Teresa thinks that it was only a matter of having made that decision or not, but it was probably a matter of many, many decisions to be the kind of person who would be happily married not just the one. So it's very tempting to use the counterfactual, like, oh, if only this had happened. Yeah. Well, well maybe the truth is... I, yeah. also, I, I also think it's fine to be... In, it doesn't have to be the same for everybody, right? It could be that, that in some cases, a fluky atmosphere-influenced decision did have a big impact on somebody's 
life uh, because it determined whether they got a job offer or where they went to school or well some- and obviously a car who died in a car accident yeah i guess the car accident is the extreme example of that is you don't even it's not that you don't have a happy life you don't even have a life but i think the what the last story does is show that often your character really is going to be the thing that determines the 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 pattern of your life even if the details are a little different Right, right. There's a there's a nice analogy that I'm struggling a little bit to make, but but there is a lot, as we mentioned before, there's a lot of discussion of weather. So, and there is also, a, I think, something interesting to be said about the science of psychology and of predicting, um, because Chang is pointing out that at first, when this technology was first discovered, there was a lot of attempt to try to figure out causally like this is now a natural experiment we can we can see universes in which this small thing diverges and so there were like historians who were trying to figure out what would make the causal difference between whatever you know in our world donald trump getting elected in another world something uh and somebody else getting elected um and so they were looking for this actual moment what was the the phrase that he used the the for want of a nail a kingdom was lost moment yeah right historians were, but the truth was that the things were so complex that these systems were so highly complex that there was no real way to determine what what it was that had actually caused anything so they kind of gave up on this on this prediction right they they couldn't yeah. The science was not down, whether it's because of fundamental indeterminacy or because we just didn't have the computational ability to be able to predict these things. It just wasn't as obvious as you might think. Cause and effect didn't follow in the same way. Yeah. You know, that's interesting. And a lot of philosophy of history struggles with this. Are there laws of history or are, do things happen in a more contingent, haphazard fashion? I, I mean, I think that the best my my favorite way of reading this is that character will determine certain patterns of behavior. It almost gives a kind of fixed character view of you know like a the anti situationist yeah. uh, kind yeah. of understanding of character, especially with that Dana story because Vanessa's going to be Vanessa. None of the stories showed like deep character changes uh, between right. people and other like the morrow in the other world is still like a scam artist the gnat yeah. in the other world seems kind of like the gnat in this world the jorge has just is is probably still angry but just didn't slash the tires and so right. like there it, we don't get a real sense that these prisms have like you don't even recognize who you're talking to in another world yeah i mean part of it is there's a sampling there's a heavy sampling bias because you you only get a prism when there is a universe where somebody who is very very identical to you also gets a prism on the other side right one way to think of it is it's creating the split and so the person that splits is so already so close to being who you are that the things that happen within the next few months aren't going to differ widely but there are some prisms from 10 years ago, like the Vanessa one. The Dana one's probably from yeah. at least 10 or 15 years ago. So you, so you might think that there might be people who, in those prisms, talk to a version of themselves that they barely <clears throat> recognize. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, if you, if you take a 16-year-old 
And then the universe splits there. And then the 30-year-old um, is talking in one universe that has split off 14 years ago to another version of themselves. You know, you might think that's a, that might be somebody who has a very different kind of character. But at, but at least in the cases that we saw, they're very similar characters, even though their universe split out split off a long time ago. Like, Dana is still someone who blames herself when she shouldn't blame herself, and Vanessa is still someone who won't take responsibility and will look for other people and say it's their fault. I agree. I agree. That's why the, the Dana and Vanessa being 15 years ago, that's the the best example of this. It's just that the other ones, like with Jorge that you were saying, like, those aren't really good evidence. Like, those are people who just split, like, yeah. uh, you know, a month ago or whatever. Right. So we, we might still have an open... There might be an open question right. as to whether they would they would defer. And I think Chang says this in the story notes, too. I get the sense that the message, to the extent that there's a message in the story, is that your character is more fixed than you might think, given this technology and this reality, and <laughs> that it's not going to be that that changes that much. It's just the details of your life that might change. Because yeah, and like and and like the Jorge story, it's not that he had great character in all these other existences and bad and bad character in this one. It's just something in all of them he was pissed off enough to hit to slash tires. And in some, like it just whatever, the smallest little thing he might have gotten a cell phone call at the moment of the decision, like could have changed it, right? Or whatever pushed him over the edge, the, the, the straw that broke his back wasn't present in the other universe. But he is still the same Jorge. This episode is also brought to you by one of our favorite sponsors, GiveWell at GiveWell.org. Uh, Tamler, did you know that it was uh, Canadian Thanksgiving? Or as we record, it's going to be Canadian Thanksgiving. No, I, I didn't. Um, well, that's, I, I, I'm not sure I knew that they had a Canadian Thanksgiving. <laughs> How very parochial of you. Um, Give Well cares about the entire world. And since I have Canadians in my family, I know that Monday is Thanksgiving. And that means that it is the beginning of the holiday season. And this holiday season, uh, what we're asking and what Give Well is asking is for you to think a little bit about others. Give Well conducts in-depth evaluations and shares the most effective charities they've found. More than 50,000 donors have trusted GiveWell, including me. I don't know about you, Tamler, but me too. I'm a, yeah. I'm a good good human being. Um, have trusted GiveWell to direct their donations, and together they've given over $500 million to the organizations that GiveWell recommends. GiveWell spends over 20,000 hours annually researching charity i don't spend twenty thousand hours annually doing anything doesn't that mean they're experts <laughs> i think they are experts i like to call them the spreadsheet nerds of charity and um, yeah. and there are just some things that you want to trust to other people to do get your bang for your charity buck that's what give well is all about that's right get that get that little that little shot of good feeling that you get when you know that you're helping others and when you go to give well you know that the money that you give really is helping others. GiveWell has a rigorous and transparent process to make sure that these charities will use your donations as effectively as possible. So this holiday season, think a little bit about people outside your scope of concern and consider giving to GiveWell. 
Now, there's no uh, URL or special code when you give to give well, but if they ask you, just let them know that they that you came from Very Bad Wizards. That way they can know that you came from us because we really, really like them as a sponsor. And we'll get a little runoff of warm, fuzzy feeling. <laughs> that's too. right. That's right. Yeah. It's true. That's that's kind of why I like doing give well ads. I, I, feel, I feel good about it. Uh, so thank you uh, very much. It's always about you. It always comes down to you and your feelings. Well, I'm, I am the only person that truly exists in this universe we all know that. Um, <laughs> so an extra special thanks on this holiday season to give well for sponsoring very bad wizards thanks to give well should we talk about the other story and then bring it back to a general discussion because both of them are very free will focused the other story is very short you can get it online from nature.com uh, yeah it's very short i do want to ask you before we wrap up that other story yeah do you think that uh jorge across all six worlds would score the same on the moral identity scale <laughs> yeah there's the a new kind of reliability parallel universe reliability that's the holy grail now for psychology is finding that's right. that kind of reliability that's you right. still have the validity problem but uh <laughs> Look at you, all sciencey. You know, I know you guys. You don't like to think about that. <laughs> I'm so glad you didn't become this like, well, actually, kind of nerd uh, ten uh, five years ago. Because I don't know, what, it's all these papers we wouldn't have talked about. Social psychology just wouldn't <laughs> exist right now if I had. I would have taken <laughs> would it have down already. It. Yeah. <laughs> you would have bodied it. Uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> look how good I've done with philosophy. You know. Um, so this other story is just very simple that there's this box that that lights up one second before you press a button and it just always the simplest it's the most simple over and over again i've said and probably you've said there is no empirical demonstration that free will doesn't exist or that does exist like that is a metaphysically uh that is impossible um it it's just a metaphysical question not a physical question ted chang came up with one I did think. he though like, I, well i don't know i mean just yeah. like, you know yes and it yes and it because uh, that's what we'll talk about is whether he did yeah uh but anyway <laughs> so this box lights up people this is I, he gives a nice description of how people react initially to it where they're like i'm gonna beat it and they like immediately reach to press it but as soon as they even have that thought the 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 light uh, comes on and they're they spend like three days just trying to like it's a rubik's cube or something trying to figure right. it out like how to beat it and they can't and, it's called a predictor by the way yeah yeah it's called a predictor and it's and it doesn't predict anything except it's an interesting kind of like libet experiment sort yeah. of um analog in some ways uh and and there's just no way to fool it it says and and this guy is writing this from the future we don't right, know exactly right. how, but he's writing this from the and future. Did, did you say, by the way, how the predictor works? No, but that's important. Yeah, you want to read yeah, that? Yeah, so the predictor works um, by actually, uh, it says, the heart of each predictor is a circuit with a negative time delay. It sends a signal back in time. The full imp- implications of the technology will become apparent later when negative delays of greater than a second are achieved, but that's not what this warning is about. He frames this as a warning to the reader. The immediate problem is that the predictor demonstrates that there's no such thing as free will. So the light is telling you that you're going to press the button, and it knows that because it has a t- little mini time machine that goes a second ahead 
and it knows <laughs> to send it back, that information back in time so that it will light up if and only if you press the button in a second. Yeah. So people are just sitting there trying to defeat the predictor by psyching it out by saying like, I'm about to, no, no, I'm not. Oh, I didn't turn on. That's such a plausible kind of description of how people would react to this. If if it was out there, you know, it's sort of like the, you know, aren't like gold dress, blue dress kind of thing where you're trying to. Have, have you seen the, uh, these robots that play rock, paper, scissors? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I actually did very well against it. Oh, there's one that beats you every single time. And it does it by having a camera that can read what shape you're forming your hand oh, into so quickly that it actually comes <laughs> up with the sign. Yeah, uh, that's the, cool. <laughs> um, but that's another. That's a. That's a good example. We talked about that with with like poker. When we, it might seem like it's undermining your free will, but it's really just like a really advanced mm-hmm. computer that can detect quickly what you're going right. to throw um, right and, and there's not it's not clear to me based on just what you read that this isn't a little like that too it just uses time travel rather than some fancy way of looking at your hand shape right yeah i mean i think that's my intuition too that that look you're gonna make a decision right right whether you make it freely uh, this doesn't show like let's say that free will exists and you have to choose between pressing the button or not let's say that some crazy libertarian fucking ghost in the machine free will exists yeah and you choose with that free will whether to press the button or not that predictor box is going to light up only when you press the button right yeah. it doesn't it doesn't it can't speak to whether or not you chose to press that button freely like, I, I almost feel like I must be missing something. Obviously, if somebody can come from the future, they will know what I've done if they've been watching me, right? Like, yeah. the, what kind of free will would be possible that a time traveler from the future wouldn't be able to come back and then predict what you were going to do? I think that's right. The, 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 the sneaking in of the f- questioning of the free will has nothing to do with the box. The box is only a, a handy demonstration. The sneaky part of determinism is that there is a future, right? That that a future exists that somebody can see that it is your future. That alone is the thing that would unsettle people, right? Because uh, you could have a, a metaphysical view that the future just simply is not a thing to be known, right? The future just hasn't happened, Right, but let's say you had this view that your choice determines what the future will be. And so your choice means that the present branches off in a certain way, and there'll still be a future, though. It's not like time stops once you make a choice. There's still going to be a future. And, And the question, as I understand this kind of free will that they're talking about, is whether your choice is the thing that uh, branches it or whether it was always determined that it would branch that way. This gets to the heart, the heart of these two stories juxtaposed because well, we haven't finished like just saying what happened. So this guy who's writing this, he, he takes exactly the opposite view of what this box shows. And he says, there have always been arguments showing that free will is an illusion, some based on hard physics, others based on pure logic. 
Most people agree that these arguments are ir- irrefutable, but no one ever really accepts the conclusion. The experience of having free, free will is too powerful for an argument to overrule. What it takes is a demonstration, and that is what a predictor provides. So he takes it that this irrefutably shows there's no free will, and in a way that convinces people who should have already been convinced by logic. And so I, I take this guy to be an unreliable narrator. Like, you can't have this naive a view about free will and be a reliable narrator. And, and I would, and again, I feel well, like I'm missing something, but my experience of free will doesn't preclude, even my just naive experience of free will doesn't preclude that I will have a choice and that there will be a five minutes from now. And if somebody, you know, exists then, they could come back and tell me what I'm going to do before I do it. This is why, this is why I think that that people who talk about free will want so badly to refer to operationalize <laughs> free will as the ability to have done otherwise. And I think that Chang, I don't think Chang's being an unreliable narrator here because he goes and lays out like the consequences that people just people just lose their lives. It's like a cognitive plague, like a like a girdle sentence that crashes the logical system. Wait, wait, but this doesn't show that you can't do otherwise. No, no, but, they, well, they, <laughs> what it shows is that you never did other than what the thing told, said that you were going to do, right? So it doesn't, I agree, it doesn't. But I think that the subjective experience is that they, because this machine knows exactly what you're going to do, it kills the subjective ability to have done what the computer says you're going to do. Right. So there and therein lies the trick because the the computer is only cataloging and this I think is what you're getting at. The computer is only cataloging your choice. The computer isn't predicting from first principles mm-hmm. what you're going to do. The computer is exactly. simply cataloging what you chose to do. Right. So it's really and, just because they have time travel, they know what you're going to choose, but it doesn't mean that your choice didn't determine the future. And there is no way to to show whether or not you could have chosen the other thing. Like right. there just simply isn't a way because you have closed off and in essence you've closed off a bunch of branches by making the choice that you did to press the button. If right? they could do Your this own. without time travel, I would get it. Right? If they yeah. could just do it just by scanning like your body yeah. and the state of the universe or something. Then I, that would make sense to me, but the fact that they use time travel just makes it see like I, I don't get why anyone thinks that right. this is a demonstration of no free will. I mean, look, like imagine imagine the freest existence where you are a person faced with a number any number of choices, like a choose your own adventure book, but but let's make it like a branching tree, right? Like a circulatory system of like branches within branches within branches. At the end of your life, there will only have been one trail that yeah. is your life. Only one set of decisions that is your life. That presumably, if you believe in free will, you chose freely. Right. The fact that all of those other branches are unpopulated cannot show that you did not make them freely. Right. right. Because you can still yeah. only make one choice at any given time. And so... And so if someone is at the end of that branch can travel back to the beginning of the branch, then they're going to know what could, you're going to do. 
there are two different, really different views of the universe in these two stories. Yeah. One is the one that I described where there is maybe a whole set of decisions that you make, but, but there is one, one route, right. That, that everybody navigates these tree branches and ends up in one place and only has one, yeah one pattern. The, the anxieties, the dizziness, the freedom story is let's imagine that all of those branches are populated with versions of you. Right. And now the question is, does that say anything about free will? So you have one in which there's like a strict, only one possible pattern, only one universe. And the other one where every universe is possible and everyone has made every decision. Does that go any, my sense, my sense is that that doesn't cut either way either. Yeah. That's the big question. Just to finish up this story, people yeah. don't handle this world with the maturity, I think, <laughs> that they handled the previous world. You know, the anxieties, <laughs> the dizziness of freedom. Right. Uh, at least some of them just become completely paralyzed. This is like a Borges story a little bit. It reminded me yeah. of like uh, Library of Babel, where some people just couldn't handle just the concept of the library and they formed cults or but then uh, what he says is some people realizing that their choices don't matter refuse to make any choices at all like a legion of Bartleby the Scriveners they no longer engage in spontaneous action eventually a third of those who play with a predictor must be hospitalized because they won't feed themselves the end state is akinetic mutism a kind of waking coma and I like this part. Doctors try arguing with the patients while they still respond to conversation. <laughs> we had all been living happy, active lives before, they reason, and we hadn't had free will then either. Why should anything change? No action you took last month was any more fr- freely chosen than the one you take today, a doctor might say. You can still behave that way now. This is partly our point, right? The patients <laughs> invariably respond, but now I know. <laughs> and some of them never say anything again. <laughs> it's kind of a funny story, actually. That's the last thing they ever say, because now they don't just engage in conversations anymore. <laughs> you know, if you've ever taught undergrads to, if you've ever threatened the free will of undergrads with a compelling account of determinism, um, which I think we all do at some point, even if yeah. what we want, even if we then go on to give them some sort of compatibilism or whatever, um, we got to get them to feel this. It, uh, it's so reliable that one of them will say, well, why don't I just sit at home all day? <laughs> yeah. Or why don't I just yeah, go out and start and just massacre instead, 50 yeah. people after seeing Joker? <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah, exactly. I mean, like the way that it's written, the perspective of the person is these are the rational people. But, you know, like pretend you have free will. He says, my message to you is this. Pretend you have free will. It's essential that you behave as if your decisions matter, even though you know that they don't. Um, which is an interesting, uh, yeah. And this is sort of like the part of the the essay where it's like you know, uh, make a few non-offensive linguistic puns. This is the advice <laughs> part, like suggestions in light of the implications of the study. <laughs> it's essential that you behave as if your decisions matter, even though you know they don't. It's such an extrapolation. There's this time traveling box that knows when I'm going to do one totally insignificant thing my decisions don't matter how did people make that leap um uh, this is why i i'm not uh, this story is is a notch what's the saying too clever um 
too clever by a by a half too clever by a half and i just by half not by a just by by half yeah. this is what happens when you're raised with immigrants i you don't you like know, he ends no i don't and it and he ends with a, so why did i do it so he's talking about how he's from the future uh because i had no choice but so I mean I I understand that but don't you think that this is an unreliable narrator and we are supposed I, well, I, to not like not take his philosophy seriously? I would like to think that, but there's nothing in the story like like a Borgesian hint of unreliability here. You know, there is I wish that he had given us more of a hint cuz it's also completely consistent with Chang actually believing that this is uh, the ultimate threat to free will. Not if you know that he's a smart guy and that these are basic. No, that's right. I meant I meant the text itself. There's nothing in the text itself. Yeah. So yeah. So I'm giving him the benefit of a doubt because of anxiety is the disease of freedom. And yeah, I mean all his stories, but it is. You're right. It you could read it straightforwardly, and but like right. this the. The, the way it's described and the people's reaction to it just doesn't seem plausible to me. And and that's a and, and whether Ted Chang is is aware of this or not, maybe that's a flaw in the story too. I just don't buy that people would react like this. Like this no, seems I like mean, a fidget I, spinner. Like it'll be something that'll be like it'll be trendy for like two months and then people will just get over it. Right. I'm and I think that uh that that this is exactly like in my experience, I'm convinced that some form of determinism is true. Um, but I don't think it has anything to do uh, with my daily life. And I certainly haven't stopped believing in agency, uh, like my day to day agency. Um, if I, if I did, maybe I would be like these people in a, you know, catatonic state. Um, but I agree with you. Like our, our, our belief in free freedom of some sort is too stubborn. It's it's not going. We cannot. But this doesn't. This is my like. I, I like. I don't feel like I've expressed this strongly enough. This doesn't go against anything about like you said earlier. You could be a radical libertarian and still this wouldn't trouble you. The fact that okay, this so box could exist. Here's the meta troll then that Chang is doing. You know all of the all of the talk about how neuroscience has demonstrated that free will doesn't exist, and and you know we have Green and Cohen who argue that yeah. that, that neuroscience at least can convince people, and people really are convinced. I think that that Chang is not wrong that people would be like tossed into despair at least temporarily if if they had evidence that they thought was a conclusive uh, defeater of the notion of freedom, and he's saying. This is kind of like MRI charts for for these people, right? right? They are tricked into thinking that free will doesn't exist. Um, yeah, they're wrong. Like I think they're wrong. Right. This is Man, like the libet experiment of its time. Like it just gets people <laughs> who aren't thinking clearly to think that free will doesn't exist. Maybe I just wish he had given us a little bit more, <laughs> a little bit more of a wink, wink. Uh, it's, it's like a hoax article kind of you know <laughs> and he got it published in nature i god damn i know <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> but I like it. But but I wanted to ask you about then like the difference between this universe with only one branch and the and the multiverse in the other story with multiple multiple branches. But wait, do Does, we know that this universe only has one branch? Because well, we all we know is that there's no access. There's no mention and no access to the other branches. Right. Right. But there so, could be um, other branches. Um, there could be other probably. branches, but it's certainly not in the way that the crystal works, where pressing the button versus not pressing the button splits you up into two different universes. And there's no mention of it. So, like, let's, for the sake of my question, assume that this is a yeah one a fully deterministic universe where where it's sort of no access to anything like a parallel universe. Versus this one where you know that every, at some point, every... Wait, time even out. Though it's, yeah. One branch and deterministic aren't the same, right? Like, it could be no, that but, everyone has free choice and, yeah, that, and when they exercise it, right? Yeah, that's the point I made at the very beginning. But if determinism is true, then... Right. I'm only trying to juxtapose it with this view because I'm curious what you think about what the multiverse view offers, because I can imagine an argument that says, okay, if I, David, choose to press button A or button B, um, I have the full ability to press either of those. When I press button A, it will branch into this universe. And when I press button B, it will branch into this universe. So the presence of universe A and B are themselves evidence that I could have done otherwise. Well, so that's not the anxiety as the dizziness of freedom world, right? Because you, it's not your decision that branches the universe. It's just... No, I know, the, I know. I'm, yeah, yeah I, I'm, but, but you get what I'm saying, right? Yeah, like, I guess. Okay. And, and maybe your decision to just activate it is the thing. Mm-hmm. To just activate it at all is the decision. You mean that imagine it. that every decision yeah. uh, y- you made was tied to the prison. Yeah. So what does that say about your free will? Yeah, does it say anything? So, so on the one hand, I think that the presence of a universe A and a B that's split from, you know, David Prime yeah. uh, splits into A and B. It seems as if person in universe B can say, I could have done otherwise. Because yeah. the and the way that you know is that there's a universe over there where I did. Right. Does that provide, if the multiverse is true and our decisions split the universe, does that provide evidence that we are free? I don't think so because... Uh, because <laughs> the, you know, let's say that the multiverse theory is true. That wouldn't, that wouldn't say anything about why we make the decisions that we make. And so even if it's like some quant- random quantum event that causes me to make decision mm-hmm. that branches off the universe one way and, or, or another way, if that's something that I'm not, this is, I'm a source incompatibilist yeah. maybe here, or the fact that it was random and could have been otherwise doesn't say that I could have done otherwise. It just says that it could have been otherwise. I agree. It says nothing at all about the the what's special to a libertarian notion of free will is the cause of those splits. Yeah. Not at all the presence of them um, or the lack of them. It is simply the cause of the decisions that are being made. Whether the universe splits or not doesn't matter. So are these stories then less about the philosophy of freedom and responsibility and more about how people react to certain technologies that seem to bear on them and maybe seem to bear on them more than they actually do? 
Yeah. I, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom to me is a really interesting study into the way in which we use counterfactual thinking yeah. to both determine what causes are and, and emotionally, right? Like, so there's a lot of uh, research in social psychology about counterfactual thinking and regret and how, re- you know, the feeling of regret comes from this comparison of a world in which I chose something else. And to have evidence that that world, in fact, exists is just a really, really cool way of showing you uh, what what you might regret and what you might not regret. And so, so it is like like we've said about Chang before. It is really just technology in the service of making an interesting point about about what human beings are like and how we can be completely filled with regret and guilt over something that we may not. We shouldn't be filled over uh, with regret and guilt. And just like the technology in the memory story we read is just simply pointing out something about memory and how we deal with it. Not really. It's not really about the technology, right? But that that reveals something about our character. You know, the way we might represent what we've d- done in a much better light than what. Like it it it, it revealed something <clears throat> deep about character that. I think would be surprising to people because we really are subject to that bias of remembering ourselves as better people than, than we were. Um, in this case, it's interesting. Like I, I, the stuff that strikes me as most plausible has nothing to do with freedom and responsibility. It's more like, well, what if, you know, what if Esquire had published that short story? Like, like what would my life be like then? I it's, it's not that I think, it's not related to any choice that i made or any decision it's more some choice that somebody else made or you know some event that happened that i had no control over but still could have made a big difference in my life you know you could have been a contender exactly (laughs) i could have been somebody instead of this philosopher which is what i am yeah no i think that that's i mean i think that's right i think that some of them would be um centered like if you could peer into the prisms would you choose prisms where it was something that you chose that differed or would it be something that happened to you that differed and that might say something interesting about the kind of person that you are i suspect that some people would really want to know like what if i had won the lottery and other people might want to know like what if i had chosen to go to college right right what if um, I had not, like, the grad school offer that came as a big surprise to me? What if I had said no? Like, what would my life be like? That was a decision. But it's even that decision. I think it's not that different than, you know, well, what if they hadn't, ex- I hadn't, like, yeah. gotten accepted off the, deep off the wait list, you know? Like, it's another interesting question. I think, so, like, in other words, if you have one prism where I chose not to do it and another prism where the applicant above me on the waiting list decided to accept instead of turn it down. Like those prisms to me are the same kind of really yeah. what I want to know is what would my life be like if for whatever reason I hadn't gone to Duke university? Yeah. So is it, I mean, maybe it's saying something just interesting about the way in which we, we view looking at decisions retrospectively like this is informing how we go about making decisions for our future. Because I think we're doing something like simulating a world in which we chose this versus that when we're making the decision, right? So I am currently, as I told you before recording, uh, deciding, I think, deciding to get a dog. 
Yes. Great. And great to see. <laughs> I'll, I'll run a poll for what to name it. And, uh, and I could, you know, in pondering this as I've been pondering for a while, I, I, I tend to think like, okay, what's my life like without the dog? You know, future, future, future without the dog. And what's my life with the dog? Future, future, future with the dog. And, and I'm One using this sort of counterfactual. Yeah. Well, and turns out less likely to die of a heart attack. Yeah. As Is that what convinced you? I, you know what? Not I don't think explicitly, but I think that it had a huge influence. Like I, I think un, unwittingly that had a huge influence on on me. Maybe it pushed me over the edge. I mean, I have been trying to be more healthy, and I don't want to die. Maybe it's my fear of death that is pushing me to get a dog. Well, whatever it has, you know, it's like the senator who now pro gay rights. It doesn't matter what, what the reason is, but you know, because his son was gay. Like yeah. as long as you're doing the right thing. You know, I don't care. It doesn't say something about my character if I only get a dog to get attention from the ladies. Well, no, it does, <laughs> but it's just at least you'll have a dog. <laughs> uh, so so I think we do, like, I guess what I'm saying is I think we do think in counterfactuals. It's interesting to think about whether you would get caught up in looking at your pre, your your retrospective counterfactuals. I think that I wouldn't, like, I don't think that I would want to. Um, I think that I would definitely prefer a machine that gave me future counterfactuals. But would you? Like what, he, right. Well, right. And then it could just then you could yeah. make choices based on that. But here's mm-hmm. the question. Let's say you were going to look at some past counterfactual. Would it matter to you whether it was a counterfactual that was that was a result of a decision you made or a counterfactual that was just the result of some lucky break or not break that you got or some decision (laughs) that somebody else made that's an that's a really interesting question and before i answer it i just want to say that like whenever anybody asks me oh so how did you get into psychology i always it always feels like there's two different ways of telling the story one that's a set of decisions that i made and the other one is just like it you know and i had this mentor who pointed me in this right direction right i think that i find those stories more entertaining and i kind of would rather look at like the the events around me changing yeah like not my own decisions that's more boring to me yeah i mean like or there, to me it's like it's it's just not that big a difference but maybe it's because i don't feel like there's a lot of decisions that were so close and were so agonizing for me that i made in my life that it's like tormenting me what if i had made the different <laughs> decisions like the decision to get to propose to my wife was kind of fluky but it would have probably happened if it didn't happen then it would probably have happened sooner or later you know right May, well maybe calling it a decision is is sort of uh, uh framing it wrong in terms of what i'm i'm trying to communicate about like the the, how it's a it's a more fun story to think about the things that weren't under yeah. your control right. like you yeah. know so so i think we want to hear more about say say you and jen there, there's two stories one is that like you both happen to be rushing in to look at the same painting because the museum was about to close oh, yeah. and were it not for that you wouldn't have met that's so much more interesting than you put in all your information on match.com and she popped out <laughs> right like <laughs> Because the counterfactual, like, oh, man, your life could have been super different. Like, had you guys not been both there at the same time? Like, that's interesting. It's so funny. You know, we uh, we met before all of that, but we have one of those stories that I won't bore listeners with that was very lucky. 
I and probably led to us getting together. Um, and it is a fun story to tell. Way more fun yeah, than anything right. that would trace back to like a decision. Of- and, and so in some ways, I think that this anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. And um, what's the name of the memory story? Truth of fact, truth of fiction. Truth of fact, truth of fiction. No, truth of Are fact, both- truth of feeling. Truth of feeling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are they're both story. They're both about the stories we tell about our own lives. Yeah. They're both fundamentally about how we go about constructing this sense of who we are, yes. whether it is by by our, mem- our the memories that we choose to distort or keep or by the decisions that we focus on as, you know, like the, the counterfactuals that haunt us. Yeah. Um, they are, you know, deci- determining, I mean, telling the story of my life by telling a series of decisions that could have gone one way or the other is is one way, you know. Like but telling they, the story of your life by a series of other just factors that I had no control over is a different way of telling it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That so, would be interesting. So, like you could use this as like I'm sure like develop a construct for this. But the <laughs> how people maybe part of the reason that we like those kinds of stories better is we don't put we don't have this narrative of ourselves that we've made these choices that have made us who we are and that those choices that led me to, you know, reach the position that I'm in. And that's just not how, that's not like important to us, but I bet it is to right. some people. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I, I think that, yeah, I think that is a big individual difference. Like the way that people tell stories. I've actually was trying to convince a student um, once to code for Oscar acceptance speeches or any Academy Award acceptance speeches to see yeah. what people say. Because a lot of people will give spend all their time up there giving credit to others. Yeah. Um, if they had never done this, they, and, and some people don't, some people really do focus on, on their hard work, yeah. you know? And I find that to be just a, a bit annoying, but it might yeah. reduce their likability, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there is a pull yourself up yeah. by your bootstraps narrative yeah. that is appealing. And it's, I think for the people, it's just that way more people, believe it about themselves than it's actually true of i mean yeah. it's true of nobody that they literally pulled themselves up by their bootstraps they, everybody had something but there are people who really yeah it's funny that we so why do i like i like the stories where somebody was you know say an actor was discovered and were it not for the kindness of this person or the this chance meeting with this person they wouldn't have succeeded i like that but it should threaten me a little bit to think that success is is due to luck but it, it doesn't really and maybe that's because i believe like vanessa they would have ended up there any anyway yeah right you know yeah i mean i um, kind of feel if you feel lucky already then yeah. it's not a threat that luck has brought you where you are cuz you already thought that to begin with i think it's those people who are very much opposed to that idea that it's luck and fluke and you know this is the people that bob frank writes about right they they don't seem to understand that the break that there were a lot of breaks that they had to get in order to make the decisions that they made that were successful that's right you know the locus of their lives is the like little circles around their decision points and they're ignoring the huge circles around everything else that like allowed them to get the, those decision points. That's interesting. And so when I get a crit in anxiety is the dizziness of freedom and I get a crystal 
that is that somebody else created, right? Where there is a person, there's my my twin on that on that universe. It's funny that they go looking for the decisions yeah, right. that were made, right? Rather than all of the other things that might have like they happened, like chance chance meeting, a chance encounter, or you know, being particularly late to a to an appointment or something. Um, they you don't hear any of that, and and it wasn't until now that I even thought that that's what you would look for. But if that's that truly is how life narratives make sense, then. Well, no, there was one story. We didn't talk about it, but there was one story about a woman who had like a crafts shop and in one of the universes, just she made the craft, the same little necklace or whatever in both universes, universes. but in one, somebody like made, like found it and made her a star, you know, so it was like the actor and the other one. (laughs) And that was kind of tormenting to her. Uh, that right, right. It's not fair. Like this person. Uh, yeah, that was a great one. That was a great one because, and it's, why is it not fair? Because I made the same decision in both universes. Right. Right. Exactly. Like, how are you going to tell me that in that universe, like I'm successful in this universe? I'm a And that's just better off. You're not knowing that. Like, right. Like <laughs> that's where the prism you know, is 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 definitely something that you're not. There's no, there's no upside to having a prism where you just got a lucky break that you didn't get in this yeah. world. You know, I don't know. At the end of these two episodes, hopefully you've gotten something out of it. But if there's one thing that you should have gotten out of it, is by exhalation by Ted Chang. Yes, I'd love to have Ted Chang on. And again, if anybody knows him. I assume that he's been too busy to respond to the many, many people who have personally reached out to him. <laughs> he must be very busy because, you know, he produces like like one story every four years. <laughs> so. uh, you hear that? You've been called out, Ted Chang. <laughs> I do support uh, him for president, though. Oh, wait. <laughs> that, that, how, can I keep that in as a benign violation? <laughs> you, you, you can keep that in. <laughs> I know the difference. <laughs> All right. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizard. <laughs> Just a very bad wizard.